Tonight I got asked to um, tell you about someone. That was about it. That's the brief. And so I'm going to tell you about John Knox. But before we begin, uh, I'll just read one verse from the Bible and then we'll pray. The verse is from Proverbs chapter 15, verse 29, which says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Uh, let's, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you, um, you do draw near to your people, and when they come to you in prayer, you hear their prayers and you answer them. Uh, Lord, we thank you for bringing us here to this camp, and we pray that um, over the next couple of days we uh, would have our hearts lifted up to you, that we would uh, be um, encouraged and rebuked and exhorted by your word, and uh, that we might know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. In 1909, that's just over 100 years ago, the Reformation Wall was constructed in Geneva to commemorate the 400th anniversary of John Calvin's birth. Um, in place of honour on the wall are four figures, the, um, whoever designed and built the wall clearly thought these were the kingpins of the Reformation. There's John Calvin, of course, Theodore Beezer, William Farrell. The, these men, that's three of them, these men were powerhouses of the Reformation which took place in Europe. They're all around sort of France and Geneva and they, they did um, a, lot of, a lot of work in Europe. But next to these three men on the Reformation wall in Geneva stands another man who spent uh, a few years in Geneva but whose heart belonged in his homeland, Scotland. I thought about doing the whole talk in a Scottish accent, but you can be thankful that I'm not going to do that. That man uh, standing next to these three powerhouses is John Knox. John Knox really was a key player in the Reformation and in the years and movements that followed. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, for example, follows the secular historian Thomas Carlyle in declaring John Knox a father of Puritanism. He identifies key aspects of John Knox's theology that are different to the other reformers um, that make him a father of Puritanism. Knox's political ideas are key uh, foundation stones to Protestant resistance theories. Uh, and really, we wouldn't have America the way it is without some of John Knox's work. And so um, I thought this guy's worth looking into. Uh, and so. Well, let's find out a bit more about this man. Well, it's not clear when John Knox was born. Uh, some people say it was 1504, 1505. Some people say it was 1514, 1515. No one really knows, but uh, the consensus generally is that he was born around 1514. Now, to place that in its context, remember Martin Luther, aged 34 at the time, took up his hammer in 1917 to nail the 95 Theses on the door of Wittenberg. So Knox was about three years old, right, when Luther was 34, nailing the uh, start of the Reformation to the door of Wittenberg, really. John Calvin was born just a few years earlier than Knox, just to place him a bit more. So 1509 was John Calvin, 1514 John Knox, Martin Luther's well into his 30s. So Knox was really born right on time to be part of this big movement, this big change in the church, the Reformation. 
We don't really know much about Knox's childhood. What we do know starts with him working as a papal cleric uh, in the Roman Catholic Church in 1540. He was an ordained Catholic priest. Uh, he left his clerical job just three years later. He was only really spent three years in, in the church. Um, it seems he got converted. Again, we don't really know much about what happened. Um, it's not, he didn't seem to think it was important enough to write down, even though he wrote a whole bunch of other things. Um, but all we know is that by the year 14, uh, 1545, at around 30 years of age, John Knox came out in public favour of the Reformation. Sometime in the previous few years, Knox had clearly heard the gospel. The next 15 years of his life were just a whirlwind of activity. It was, he's just insane. Um, in 1545, Knox served as a bodyguard to an itinerant preacher named George Wissart. Uh, preaching was a dangerous gig, apparently, back then, um, for the dissenting ministers. They were always under threat of assassination or death. Um, and so Knox actually, he wore a two-handed broadsword that he used to defend this itinerant preacher, George Wissart. John Knox wrote about one incident where Wissart came close to being killed. He said, the devil ceased not to stir up his own son, the Cardinal, again. That's Cardinal Beaton, who will come up a bit later. Who corrupted by money a desperate priest named Sir John Wigton to slay the said Master George. I wish I could do a Scottish accent. It would be so much better. This, uh, this priest, John Wigton, came near to Wissart with a small short sword under his cloak. Um, Wissart, brave man that he was, calmly walked over to him and saw what he was about to do, placed his hand on his hand, took the sword off him. And, <laughs> and just calmly just diffused the whole situation. Actually, the crowd really didn't like that this priest was trying to murder their preacher. And so they wanted to rail against and kill this little priest. Um, but Wishart said, no, if you're going to kill him, you've got to take it up with me. Um, and so he saved this uh, would-be assassin's life. It was after this incident that Knox was appointed to be Wishart's bodyguard. That role kind of lasted too long, like most things in Knox's life, it just sort of keeps carrying on, um, because Wissart was burned the following year. So he, maybe he wasn't a very good bodyguard, I don't know. That same year, in 1546, Cardinal Beaton, the guy who had hired this priest to kill uh, Knox's guard, uh, Wissart, uh, was assassinated by some zealous Protestants. Cardinal Beaton was responsible, just for some context, maybe the Protestants had a reason. <laughs> uh, Beaton was responsible for many deaths of Christians coming out of the Church of Rome. He was the one who'd paid the priest to kill Wissart, and he'd even employed assassins to have a go at John Knox in the early years after Knox's conversion. Um, in fact, uh, Beaton also had done things like he killed a, uh, four, four Protestant men um, because they ate goose on a Friday, which was during Lent, and so they were, they were breaking Roman Catholic Lent, and so he had them hung. He uh, killed a, a, a young woman because when she was in the middle of giving birth, she prayed to Jesus and not to Mary, and so he had her drowned with her child. He was a pretty crooked fellow. He wasn't just, he wasn't just bad, he was bloodthirsty. So the Protestants took it into his own hands, and, um, and they, they assassinated him. Well, Cardinal Beaton, he lived in a castle in St Andrews, a town in Scotland. Um, Knox, writing about the assassination, 
uh, wrote that we should observe God's just judgments. So he, he, didn't, he wasn't shedding too many tears for Cardinal Beaton. He goes on to say that these are the works of God. I really want to do it in a Scottish accent. <laughs> Whereby he would admonish the tyrants of this earth that in the end he will be revenged of their cruelty. So he says, you're going to go against God? Well, that's what you're going to get, mate. Through various situations, Knox ended up sheltering in the castle at St Andrews with the Protestant assassins. Uh, they became known as the Castilians. Um, it was here among Protestant rebels. They were sort of surrounded. Scotland was pretty well Catholic at the time, and they, they were holed up in this castle, and if they came out, they really would have been killed, basically. So Knox ended up in there with them, these Protestant rebels, and it was here among Protestant rebels that he was first called to public ministry. It's a great story. His calling was, was not like um, some that we see today. Um, Knox was not called by uh, an intense personal desire to come to the ministry. In fact, the serving preacher of the Castilians, John Ruff, saw Knox's talents for preaching and, and asked Knox to preach. Uh, Knox declined. He said, I'm not going to go there right now. Uh, so then Ruff staged... <laughs> And a public calling where he um, called the whole congregation in and he preached a sermon directed at Knox, calling him to the ministry. He then had a congregational vote where the congregation voted Knox in to be the serving preacher, at which point Knox, tough guy that he was, ran off to his room crying. <laughs> uh, in, the, in this sermon, uh, Ruff said, In the name of God and of his son, Jesus Christ, and in the name of these that presently calls you by mouth, I charge you that you do not refuse this holy vocation. Is that any good? Any Scottish people in there? I don't know. But... So, anyway, there you go. Knox... <laughs> Knox was called to the ministry. Soon after this, a French fleet arrived by sea to help the Scottish officials overthrow the Protestants at St Andrews. The fleet's guns, together with the Scottish cannons, reduced the castle walls to rubble, and the Castilians were captured. Knox was taken with them, uh, and they were all set to work as French prisoners on uh, galley ships. They were, they were to row the galleys around for the French. For 19 months, Knox rowed in these vermin-infested galleys. Uh, for a bit of context, C.S. Lewis's brother, William, I didn't know he had a brother, but there you go, he, does, he didn't. His name was William, and he described what it would have been like for someone on a French galley. He said... He wasn't Scottish, so I don't have to do this in a Scottish accent, it's good. For the convicts, there was no question of sleep. From below came the constant clink of chains, the crack of whips on bare flesh, screams of pain and savage growls. At each oar, all five men must rise as one. At each stroke, push the 18-foot oar forward, dip it in the water and then pull with all their force, dropping into a sitting position at the end of each stroke. One would not think, said a Huguenot convict, that it was possible to keep it up for half an hour. And yet I have rowed full out for 24 hours without pausing for a single moment. Needless to say, 19 months of this torment, as Knox referred to it, took its toll on Knox's body and he suffered from kidney stones, insomnia and other afflictions for the rest of his life. It seems he went in as a pretty healthy bloke um, and came out pretty wrecked. It's now 1549, and Knox is set to enjoy about three to four years of relative peace. 
In these years, he meets his future wife, Marjorie Bowes, is recognised for his preaching and is even appointed as a chaplain to the new King of England, Edward VI. Uh, one of six chaplains, I believe. So Knox actually sort of moved to England and he, and he made a significant impact in England. He uh, knew and worked with Puritans and Anglican or Church of England reformers such as Thomas Cramner. In fact, Knox had input to the Book of Common Prayer and was involved in the writing of the 42 articles, which were later revised to the 39 articles, which are the foundational documents of the Anglican Church. Knox was even offered not one, but two high appointments in the Church of England. One position was the Bishop of Rochester, uh, which he denied. The other was a Dean of some other church, which he also denied. Unfortunately, the reign of King Edward VI came to an end when he died in 1553, and the Roman Catholic Queen Mary came to the throne. You might know her, she's referred to as Bloody Mary, because she killed so many Protestants. These were tumultuous times when a ruler had significant sway over life and so the peace and protection that the reformers and Puritans had enjoyed under King Edward turned swiftly into persecution at the hands of Queen Mary. So it was that in 1554, at about 40 years of age, so that's 10 years since he was converted, Knox fled, to, fled from England for Europe. It was over in Europe that Knox made his way to Geneva and struck up a friendship which he would maintain for the rest of his life with John Calvin. Less than a year after arriving in Geneva, however, Knox was called to pastor an English congregation in Frankfurt in Germany, which is about 600 kilometres north of Geneva. Knox's time at Frankfurt has a couple of interesting points. He didn't last long there um, because he clashed with a, a majority of the congregation who wanted to see an Anglican form of worship in the church. For the reformers, of course, the Anglican form of worship was often seen as a halfway reform of the church. There were a whole lot of vestiges that the reformers saw in the Anglican worship service that reminded them of Rome, and they were always wanting to get rid of those things which were not biblical. As a result of Knox's convictions on this, the pro-Anglican portion of the congregation sought to betray him to the English queen and the Spanish emperor. This is like some serious church split going on. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get you killed. Uh, being warned by the city magistrates of Frankfurt, Knox fled back to Calvin in Geneva. The second interesting thing to note about this whole Frankfurt encounter is Calvin's advice to Knox. After hearing of this conflict, no small conflict, right? They're going to betray him to the authorities so that he'd be killed. Um, Calvin encouraged Knox to seek peace with the English congregation at Frankfurt. He says, this is Calvin's words, When I heard that a part of you intended to quit your present residence, I carefully admonished them, as was my duty, that if it was not convenient for all to inhabit the same place, yet that separation to a distance should not break up your fraternal union. Calvin continues, For if by chance any of you should retire to this place, that's Geneva, the very suspicion of secret discord among ourselves would be afflicting to me. Therefore, I greatly desire that what I hear of your return to feelings of mutual goodwill is solid and stable, that if any of you chance to wander elsewhere, though separated by place, you can cultivate a holy friendship. Isn't that an um, interesting advice, given the 
um, sharpness of their disagreement there. So Knox returned to Geneva and spent about a year there before returning to Scotland in 1555 where he embarked on a whirlwind preaching crusade. Now this was not like a Billy Graham crusade where you have, or he would have had thousands of people coming to hear him preach, but um, instead of having welcome from the officials, of course, Knox came during the reign of Mary Guise, who was the acting Queen of Scotland. She wasn't the actual Queen, but the actual Queen was too young, so there was Mary Guise uh, reigning in her place, who uh, was a Catholic and immediately condemned um, John Knox and sought to bring him down. Uh, in fact, I think it was during this tour that he uh, preached in the church of St. Andrews and the bishop of that area said to him, if you come and preach here, I'll welcome you with a 12-gun salute, most of which will come right at your nose. <laughs> so that was the sort of um, tour he was on. During this tour, though, Knox married his first wife, so he met her previously, came back from Europe, married her. He convinced the Reformed Protestants to stop attending the Roman Catholic Mass in a debate. He was put on trial by a church court who got scared when he turned up for the trial and cancelled it when he got there. And he wrote a letter to the acting queen telling her to support the Reformation, effectively threatening her that she will bring torment and pain everlasting upon herself if she doesn't. It's a lot to uh, achieve in that short time. He was only there for about a year because he was called back to Geneva to pastor a congregation there. And he obeyed that call heading back in 1556. The best part about all this is that the authorities, when they found out that John Knox had left Scotland, rescheduled the trial. And when Knox didn't turn up, they promptly found him guilty of heresy, sentenced him to death and burned his effigy in um, Edinburgh. So that... They couldn't stand up to him, so they just waited for him to leave, and then they got him. <laughs> Back in Geneva, uh, Knox spent the next three or four years pastoring and writing. It was here that Knox wrote one of his best-known pieces, which was, which was titled, First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Moderous, Monstrous Regiment of Women, in which he argued that to promote a woman to bear rule, superiority, dominion, or empire above any realm, nation, or city is A, repugnant to nature, B, consumely to God, and see the subversion of good order of all equity and justice. Um, he was writing, obviously, because Bloody Mary was on the throne of England, Mary Guise was on the throne in Scotland, both of which were persecuting Christians left, right and centre. But, unfortunately for him, his little tract that he wrote, condemning the rule of women, arrived in England after Bloody Mary died, and with just, just after the appointment of the Protestant Queen, Elizabeth I. Needless to say, when Queen Elizabeth read Knox's work, she was not at all very impressed. And Knox got off to a very bad start with this new Queen of England. Knox returned to Scotland in 1559 at about aged 45 for his final 13 years of work. The political climate when he arrived was still one where the Roman Catholics, backed by the power of Roman Catholic France, were uh, ruling Scotland. Persecution of Protestants was in full flight. Um, but in these 13 years, through the, through the preaching of Knox, really, and, and many others, I'm sure, um, they took down Roman Catholicism. 
in, in 13 years, really. Uh, where Knox preached, people were converted to the true gospel and statues and practices of the Roman Catholics were felled. Scotland uh, really was an explosion waiting to happen for the Reformation. The acting queen, Mary of, Gu- Mary of Guise, was losing her hold on the country, not through political intrigue or military escapades, but through the powerful preaching of the gospel. Knox's preaching, however, was not a minimalist gospel. He never shied from preaching against the wickedness of culture. He never shied against preaching against the Roman Catholic practices of the day, the evil of the rulers of Scotland, or the sins of his particular congregation. His gospel was a full-fledged, broad-ranging gospel that hit every part of life. Because of the heat of the political environment and the power of Knox's preaching, violence and riots would sometimes occur after his sermons. In one notable instance, Knox preached against the mass in a church. Uh, After his sermon had finished, it was clear they were clearly using a shared space. Um, After his sermon had finished and after most of the congregation had left, a poor Catholic priest came up and started to prepare to say mass in that same church. A boy, who had clearly understood Knox's sermon, took issue with the priest. The priest shoved him. The boy threw a rock at the priest, which missed the priest and hid an idol and smashed it. And at the sound of the smash, the whole crowd erupted and a riot started. Where, where, and I'm not talking like a small riot. I'm talking two whole Roman Catholic buildings were just leveled by the, by the rioters. Which I believe uh, Knox called the unruly masses or something like that. The following few months were tumultuous politically and ended up with the acting Queen Mary being removed from power. England stepped in to help the Scottish people and Knox was invited with five other ministers to write the Scottish Confession. And so very quickly, you move from a Roman Catholic government inflicting um, persecution on the, the reformers to the government inviting Knox and uh, and five others to write a confession that will go to Parliament to be passed, much like the Westminster Confession. uh, Because God has a sense of humour, the five ministers, uh, well, six ministers invited to this task were named. John Winram, John Spottiswood, John Willock, John Douglas, John Rowe, and you guessed it, John Knox. <laughs> I just think that's hilarious. In, in August of 1560, the Scottish Confession was passed by Parliament. It's just an astonishing event, considering the, the violence and the opposition that the Reformers had faced for decades. Incredibly, even with this largely Protestant political situation and the events of recent years very fresh in their minds, The Scottish welcomed back their queen, who had now grown up and was going to return. She was growing up in France because they they wanted her to be a Roman Catholic, her parents or something. So she grew up in France, was trained as a Roman Catholic, came back to claim her throne after all this had taken place. And the Scots said, well, yeah, uh, you've got the right to the throne. So we'll have you back. But on one condition only. You cannot practice your Roman Catholicism outside of your house. So that was their condition. She had to keep her Catholicism private. The last 10 years or so of Knox's life were spent in seeking to build up the new Church of Scotland. 
He helped write two books of discipline, which were similarly, similar to the English Directory of Public Worship. These books laid out how the church should operate in matters of worship, preaching, and practice. Knox's body was understandably weakened by his years of hard labor for the Lord, and so in 1572, at 58 years of age, Knox's health began to deteriorate quickly. He preached all the way up to just a couple of weeks before his death, at uh, times even being carried into the pulpit um, because he couldn't, couldn't walk there himself. And on his deathbed, it's reported that there was scarcely an hour when some portion of Scripture wasn't read to him. And he found particular hope in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter on the resurrection. After his wife read it, he said, now that's a great chapter, isn't it? <laughs> and it is. Uh, and also John 17, which he described as where I cast my first anchor. So Knox passed into glory with his final words, Now it is come, come Lord Jesus, sweet Jesus, into thy hand I commend my spirit. Now I hope you've picked up a few helpful points along the way as, as I've covered John Knox's life in less than half an hour. Uh, but I'd like to just keep you with me for a few more minutes uh, to tell you about one aspect of his life that particularly struck me. That is, that John Knox was a man of prayer. As we saw from Knox's call to the ministry, Knox was not a self-confident man. He deeply sensed his own weakness and unfitness for his task. He once said, I have rather need of all than that any have need of me. Often we don't sense our need, I think, like Knox did. Particularly in our independent, you-can-do-it culture, uh, we're taught to think highly of ourselves and to assume that we can do all things through my own belief in my own abilities. Knowing that we are weak and needy, though, is one thing. It's an important thing. It's a necessary thing, and it's a true thing. But if we only have a sense of our weakness, we'll be left paralyzed and useless. We also need to know where to go to find strength. Knox knew where to find the strength and power that he sensed he lacked in his God. That's why he could pray this regarding the church in Scotland. He said, Seeing that we are now left as a flock without a pastor in civil policy and as a ship without a rudder in the midst of a storm, let thy providence watch, Lord, and defend us in these dangerous days that the wicked of the world may see that as well without the help of man as with it, you are able to rule, maintain, and defend the little flock that depends upon you. So he's saying, if we, if we just come to you, Lord, I know that you can help us with or without man. Having learned from Calvin in several years in, for several years in Geneva, he almost certainly knew the truths that Calvin taught regarding prayer. Um, this, this quote's from his institutes, and I think it's just wonderful. Whatever we need and whatever we lack is in our Lord Jesus Christ. It remains for us to seek in him and in prayers to ask of him what we have learned to be in him. And all, our, all that we need is in Christ. And it's just, we just need to go to him to ask for it. That's all. This relationship between weakness and prayer was heightened for Knox when it came to trouble and fear. He says in his treatise on prayer, trouble and fear are the very spurs to prayer. For when man, compassed about with vehement calamities and vexed with continual solicitude, having by help of man no hope of deliverance, does call to God for comfort and support from the deep pit of tribulation, 
Such a prayer ascends into God's presence and returns not in vain. For Knox, though prayer was not an occasional activity, it was to be constant. In his definition of prayer, Knox calls prayer an earnest and familiar talking with God, to whom we declare our miseries, whose support and help we implore and desire in our adversities, and whom we lord and praise for our benefits received. It's a familiar talking to Knox. It's something we do continually. We can be tempted to think of prayer as something we need to spend a set time doing each day, and that is probably true. That's a good thing to do. But Knox took took the command in Scripture to pray without ceasing seriously. And I think we see something of Knox's prayer life in his descendants. Knox's youngest daughter, I think her name was Elizabeth, married a man named John Welch, who was a preacher in uh, Scotland as well, whose home was reportedly filled with constant audible prayer. The man just walked around praying the the whole time. Welch was such a man of prayer that he would often get up in the middle of the night and pray. And his wife, seeing him get up in the freezing cold, would take a blanket and cover him lest he freeze. After being sent to prison for preaching that Christ, not the king, is the head of the church, Welch's knees lost all feeling because of how much time he spent in prayer on the prison floor. I think uh, Welch's son, so Knox's great-grandson, had knees that were hard, as hard as, I can't remember what they compared to, but they were just totally calloused because he was such a man of prayer. And they clearly learned that from someone. At times, we may feel like we can't approach God because of our sin or, an, or our unworthiness. To this, Knox points out, and this is his words, that our most prudent physician... It's God, has provided two plasters to give us encouragement to pray. That is, a precept or a command and a promise. God commands us to pray, and so, Knox argues, not to pray is a sin most odious. Above all our iniquities, we must work manifest contempt, oh, sorry, we work manifest contempt and despising of God when we, by negligence, um, delay to call for His gracious support. And so because God commands us to pray, Knox says it's a sin if you don't. That should encourage you to pray. But on top of that, Knox continues, to his commandment, he adds his most undoubted promise in many places. For example, and he quotes a whole bunch of them, but here's one, ask and you shall receive, seek and ye shall find, Matthew 7, 7. And so God's promises to hear and answer our prayer should encourage us on as well. John Knox was known by those close to him as an eminent wrestler with God in prayer. And Knox certainly expected God to answer his prayers. Using scriptural examples and personal testimony, Knox argues in his treatise on prayer that God does hear the earnest prayers of his people and will answer them. Pointing to David's prayers when he faced the trial of persecution, Knox notes that in the midst of these anguishes, the goodness of God sustained him so that the present tribulation was tolerable and the infallible promises of God so assured him of deliverance that his fear was partly mitigated and gone. For Knox, God's answer to prayer will not always be immediate deliverance. God's answer may include sustaining the Christian through the suffering and assurance of future deliverance. However, Knox didn't stop there. He prayed as one who knew that God does act on the prayers of his people. And this again is evident from his life. 
Mary Stewart, uh, who was the, the second Mary who, ran, who came back, the Catholic who was put in um, by, after they passed the, um, the Scots Confession, the Roman Catholic Queen of Scotland, she is reported to have said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. When Knox first fled in Scotland to Europe, when all seemed hopeless for Scotland, he prayed, Lord, give me Scotland ere I die. And by the end of his life, after many more years of labor and prayers, and by the power of God's grace, Knox was given Scotland. May we all learn to pray like John Knox. Let me pray and then uh, I'll open it up for questions. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent many men and women before us who've run the race and reached uh, the, the prize. And we pray, Lord, that as we uh, consider the life of John Knox, that we would be encouraged to follow in his footsteps as far as he followed Christ. Lord, make us people of prayer like him. Uh, make us people who have a, a great desire to see your gospel reach uh, our nation. Uh, and uh, Lord, make us people of action. Uh, who go and do what we need to do to see these things come about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions? Fantastic. Well, if you uh, like the sound of not... Oh, yeah. Yes, Joel. That's what I was about to say. <laughs> uh, so I, for, for this talk, I read three books, The Mighty Weakness of John Knox... Um, by Douglas Bond, um, which is, uh, all, most of these books give a short biography at the start and then lessons that you learn through the rest of the book. Um, and his, his section on prayer was fantastic. Uh, John Knox by Doug Wilson is a great one. If you have the Canon app, you can listen to it on Audible and every time John Knox is quoted, it's done with a Scottish accent, it's fantastic. So that's worth listening to. Um, and Lloyd-Jones and Ian Murray had, have written a little work on Knox and the Reformation, um, which, which looks at it not from so much a biographical angle, but more how he worked in the Reformation, which, I, which is good. But uh, over on the bookstore, you won't find any of those because I didn't have any in stock. Um, but there is one by Lawson, which I believe you have read. Uh, no? <laughs> a little bit. Um, but that would be, that'd be worth reading. And there's also some of his practical works over there if you want to read the man himself. His treatise on prayer is quite short, is available free online, and is worth reading, I think. Yes? Any, does that have any no, interestingly, uh, he didn't write any of his sermons down. Um, well, not quite true. He did write one or two down, um, but he, he never wrote a manuscript or anything. He just preached and then I think he, he might have written one down because he got tried for it later and you had to remember it. Um, but, yeah, no, there's very little, yeah, next to nothing, of his preaching. Did anyone do a book review on his book on Britain? His book on... <laughs> Did anyone do a book review? Oh, in the day? Or afterwards? Or afterwards, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't, know. I don't know the answer to that. It's also pretty short. You can find that free online and read it. He did write, uh, Knox wrote a, ref a history of the Reformation in Scotland, um, which tells his story um, and the story, but it doesn't, it's not like he's the main character of his own book. 
he just tells the story of the Reformation, but you get a lot of his life out of that as well. Um, so that's a fascinating read. I only dipped into that a little bit. Uh, could be. Um, probably is. It's pretty old. So We have it at Reformers. <laughs> uh, any other questions? <laughs> yes, we've talked about this before. I left that out. Uh, he's, he was buried uh, somewhere, <laughs> but his grave is no longer marked. He's now under a car park, which um, at the time of the writing of The Mighty Weakness of John Knox, which was about four or five years ago, was lot 26 in some random car park in Scotland, I presume. There you go. Really? <laughs> Ah, there you go. Yeah. It's good I said it's all Asia reality. Has been for the last 400 years. <laughs> Any other questions? No? Very good. Well, um, I'll see if I have a schedule on me. I'll tell you what, what comes next. There's... Uh, Supper at 8.30. 9 o'clock it's got in here. 8.30? I think 8.30 is probably a wise idea. Uh, and then breakfast is at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning, followed by the first talk starting at 9.15. 9.15. Also, uh, there is a bookstall over there. Um, just see me if you, if you want to. I'll put a computer next to it which has all the prices on it. You can look around. Um, it'll be 20% off whatever the price is on there, so. Bargain. Bargain. Some, well, some of the books I think are 25% off over there. <laughs> no, 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 no. It'll be 20% off that. Unless it's already on special. I don't do discounts on discounts. That's just crazy. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much.